This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day smart metabolic burn by brain md can kickstart your metabolism fight stubborn body fat especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey right now save over 30 percent on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1 800 273 8255. For the next year, I was always on the road or on the phone or lying on my couch, awash in television, gathering the strength to leave again. I answered every question like no one had ever asked before. We do not turn into what we pretend to be, but what we pretend can still unmake us. Worship the false idol and tell yourself you are only playing the game of survival. How long before that graven image comes to mean something or everything? How long before we confuse happiness with distance from disaster, closure with being unable to remember? That's Adam Mansbach, award-winning novelist, screenwriter, cultural critic, and number one New York Times bestselling author of the hilarious instant classic, Go the Fuck to Sleep. Yes, there are going to be cuss words in this episode. It's in the book's title, after all. 
You know that expression, God doesn't give us anything we can't handle? I hate that expression. Sometimes God, or the universe, or whatever, gives us a lot. And sometimes, something absolutely terrible coincides precisely with something absolutely wonderful. And how are we supposed to manage? Adam's story is about exactly that, when it all explodes all at once. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a close suburb to Boston. My parents moved to Newton like a lot of people because it was known to have good public schools. Both of them are from the Boston area. My father grew up in Boston and Brookline. My mother is from Cambridge. So I had also four grandparents living in the area for most of my childhood. Now that I'm a parent and I look at the relatively constrained level of freedom that my kids have because of the way we are placed geographically, I look back at my childhood and think about how much freedom we had to just kind of run the neighborhood, you know? walking to school, taking the train into Boston, playing pickup basketball or football at different parks and playgrounds, walking to friends' houses. Like, there was a game we played that was kind of a modified, more violent version of, like, hide-and-seek, where it was hide-and-seek plus throwing tennis balls at people. And uh, it ranged over, you know, like, probably a couple of square miles, which was ridiculous because you never found the other team. They were hiding for, like, three days. So when I think about the geography, that's the first thing that comes to mind is just sort of having the run of a large, pretty safe suburban space, and then also having the freedom to take the train and explore. I could get on the train and go to my grandparents' house in Cambridge, you know, take the green line, switch to the red line, be there in less than an hour. I could take the train to different record stores i you know i was a dj so i was always looking for vinyl so i could like even before i could drive or anybody i knew could drive i could get around the greater boston area with a certain amount of ease tell me about your mother your father and your younger brother david so my parents met at the worcester telegram and gazette um my dad was an editor and my mom was a reporter fresh out of grad school My mother is very funny and acerbic and has a quick wit and curses like a sailor. So like when Go the Fuck to Sleep came out, you know, I placed a lot of blame on her for teaching me to talk like that. My mom comes from a family of writers and wordsmiths. My grandmother, her mother was a poet and a playwright. Her father was a law professor and a judge who was known for the eloquence of his legal writing. Both of them were very present in my life growing up. I think in a lot of ways, my mom sort of rebelled against the culture of their house. They were both very social. They threw a lot of parties. They went to a lot of parties. Their friends and their careers in some ways came first. I mean, this was also a different time, but like, you know, they weren't probably as present as parents as she would have liked them to be. And... As time went on, I think she found the elevated sort of 
intellectual, artistic, social life of her parents' house to be a little bit oppressive um, and kind of rebelled against it. She didn't like to go to their parties. I like to go to their parties. She brought me to their parties and then like hung out in the kitchen, ignoring everybody. But she was pretty close to her parents, I think, in her own way. And her parents were very much a presence and an influence on me growing up. You know, these were the first, my grandmother was the first writer I ever met. And as I grew up and got into hip hop, I found this very close parallel in my grandmother's work because she was writing rhyming political poetry that skewered politicians and social mores. And it was like published in our local newspaper. She had a poetry column called The Muse of the Week in Review that was in the Boston Globe and um, syndicated in a bunch of other newspapers, which seems insane in retrospect. But like in the 80s, you could have a syndicated political poetry column. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here shaking my head like, oh, for, yeah. the, oh, for those days. <laughs> right, right. Also, there were these things called newspapers in those days. Yeah, imagine that. My father was very much a working class kid from Brookline. My dad came from a family without much money. His dad was various kinds of salesmen over the years. I always think of him as kind of a, a Willie Loman kind of guy. His mother was a painter, but not really a successful one and also was manic depressive, although I don't think they had that diagnosis then and was in and out of the hospital. So my dad lived at home through college, went to Boston University, and then went straight into the workforce as um, a reporter at the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, the TNG as they called it. And, uh, you know, is a brilliant guy and spent 40 years subsequently in the Boston Globe newsroom and became kind of the institutional memory of the Boston Globe newsroom. My dad has an incredible memory and spent 40 years like laying out the front page of the paper deciding how it looked and what went there. One of the things about my dad that I really always loved and noticed was how much he loved his work. He worked weird hours. He went to the newspaper at like three, four in the afternoon. He packed a dinner. He didn't come back until one in the morning, but he loved it. It was somewhere he was excited to go every day. And because of that and his job and his sensibilities, we lived in a house where Everybody read the newspaper and discussed what was in it. We were very much creatures of politics. We followed elections the same way we followed the Red Sox. Hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of the culture that, that I grew up in. And so how old are you when you moved to Newton? Uh, I was two years old when my family moved from Worcester to Newton. And my dad moved from the Telegram to the Boston Globe, I think in 1978. And your brother David is born when you're how old? I was born in 76 and he was born in 79. We we're two years, nine months apart. My brother was, I think, you know, some of my earliest memories of him were of a certain kind of um, unspoken worry and anxiety around him for reasons that I think didn't actually make any sense, but that as a parent now, I understand very well because kids develop differently. And I was really gregarious and learned to speak really, really early, as firstborn kids often do. My brother didn't learn to speak quickly. And when he did, he had kind of a minor speech impediment. 
And I think these things made my parents think that he might not be smart. And in my family, particularly my mother's family, there's really nothing more important than being smart. And I think that was their big fear, that he like wasn't so bright. This is a kid who went on to get a 1600 on his SATs, go you get a PhD in atmospheric science. But I remember there being a certain kind of like worry and coddling of him, um, particularly around the, the talking. And I remember being the only person in the house who could sometimes understand what he was saying. And I would translate what he was saying for my parents. And then, you know, I remember just a goofy, giggly kid. I remember even at the time seeing how some of my friends and their younger brothers or sisters interacted. And I don't know that David and I were like as easy and, and free with each other. You know, we fought a lot. All kids do, I guess. But I loved him and we hung out to some extent and we sort of did our own thing to a large extent as well. We had very different kind of interests. David didn't have as many friends as I did. He went on to not be a creature of like words and jokes and arguing the way that I was and the way that kind of the rest of my family also was. He became a scientist. And I mean, even at a young age, he sort of had the proclivities and the inclinations of a scientist. A lot of my childhood memories do revolve around like how we were each treated by our parents and the compensatory things they seem to do, um, maybe to give him more agency or more of a sense of himself. Like I remember them buying him like a Nintendo and basically telling him that it was his and that I could only use it with his permission. So, you know, like in retrospect, that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird move, right? Like, okay, you bought your like eight year old, uh, a Nintendo and he's the gatekeeper of it. There's no equity here. There's no like, you're going to play for half an hour and your brother's going to play or like, we're going to set a timer or like you got to share. I think that they felt like giving him sort of ownership was was going to be, I don't know, good for him somehow, empowering to him somehow, or that I would overwhelm him if they didn't. I, I remember feeling a lot like there was the fear that I would overwhelm him or my superior ability to speak would somehow sort of subsume him, which in some cases was true. I also remember being a real dick to him because I could talk circles around him and knowing that eventually if I did it long enough, he would just resort to hitting me. And in, in that, and that was sort of like when I knew I had won, you know, if he just gave up and started flailing his fists at me, that was a victory for me. It's so interesting because now I'm sure as a parent yourself, once you become a parent, so many of these moments from your own childhood are understood differently, right? Or the or the worry of your parents when they were being your parents as 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 little kids. From the way you're describing that story to me, probably a lot of thought went into David's Nintendo, yeah. you know, and like leveling the playing field somehow, or like the idea that they needed to level the playing field so that you know that it could be his. Yeah, I think I think a lot of thought probably did go into it. I wonder in retrospect if any of that thought was directed toward consulting people who knew anything about child psychology. Um, my guess is maybe not. Yeah, it sort of wasn't the time, you know? Yeah. In our, yeah. In our times, that would be stop number one. But in those times, no matter how educated and sophisticated people were, it wasn't the first thing they thought about. Right. 
Adam and David are two very different kids with different interests and different paths. David is on track to become a scientist, and Adam is on track to become a writer. Though, of course, when it comes to a career as a writer, there is no well-lit path. It helps that Adam comes from a family of writers, which gives him a kind of permission, the sense that such a life is possible. His father is an editor, his uncle is a sports writer, his grandmother is a poet. It is, as you might say, the family business. And yet, it can take a long time for writers just starting out to find their footing. There are no guarantees. You write in your extraordinary poem-slash-memoir sort of genre-defying book, I Had a Brother Once. It's a sentence that begins with not even just the word and, but actually an ampersand. And you, you write, and now it was... May 28th, 2011. What was going on in your life at that point? So, you know, for a number of years, I'd been basically just a a novelist, a literary novelist who at any given time was like knee deep or waist deep or shoulder deep in a book and coming up to maybe do a little journalism on the side. I had a two-year-old daughter. I was teaching in the MFA program at Rutgers Camden, which was kind of the first full-time academic job I'd had, I was lucky enough to get it, and then lucky enough to get offered a second year in my visiting writer position. And, you know, I was just kind of trying to figure out how to make a career as a writer. Like, I had a career as a writer, but I was trying to figure out how to not lose that career, not have to fall back on teaching full-time, which I enjoyed but didn't want to do forever. And I suddenly had a kid, and a greater degree of sort of financial responsibility than I'd ever had before. And my teaching appointment was going to end in a couple of months and I was going to go back to California and the mortgage on my house and all kinds of things. So I was just trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. While he's figuring out his next move, Adam writes an unusual and unquantifiable 28-page book. He really writes it for himself. He's not sure there's any market for it at all, and neither is his literary agent. He ends up selling it to a small press owned by a friend with very low expectations. The book in question, Go the Fuck to Sleep, is not quite out yet, but it will be soon. It's about to go viral. But Adam doesn't know this yet. He's a new dad in Philly. He's teaching, DJing, hoping for the best. I wrote that book really with no expectation that it was even publishable certainly was not part of my like strategy to secure a future for myself or my family um you know the book was really just kind of something i did for fun it was my attempt to kind of cross stitch all of the board books b-o-a-r-d but it kind of works both ways because they're incredibly boring like The little cutesy books that you read to your kids at bedtime that have all of these A, B, C, B rhyme schemes and these like cutesy animals who are all toddling off to bed to try to kind of remix that by inserting a real parental monologue into it. Something that expresses the frustration of a parent who cannot get his kid to go to sleep, which was the position I found myself in every night with my daughter Vivian, who was probably two, two and a half when I wrote the book in 2010. And, you know, a year later, when the book started to inexplicably make all this noise. 
the book was supposed to come out in October, but the day after my daughter Vivian's third birthday, April 23rd, I did a gig in Philly where basically I read the book out loud on stage. I had just gotten a PDF of the entire book with illustrations and I was able to project it on a screen. And I, you know, I read it to maybe 150 people and I got a good reaction. They thought it was funny. People asked me where they could buy it. I told them they couldn't because it wasn't coming out for six months. So from that initial reading, people began to order the book and the buzz began to spread. By the end of the week, the book was number one on Amazon. This book did, that, that did not yet exist, hadn't even been printed yet, was not even on a boat headed for the United States yet. And from there, things sort of accelerated and got even crazier because the fact that an obscenely titled book from an obscure publisher was number one, sort of engendered a round of media attention, which I think then led to a PDF of the entire book beginning to ricochet around the internet. And meanwhile, we're rushing to get the book out as soon as possible. So instead of October, we publish it on Father's Day, which I believe was June 14th. So we're sort of rushing toward that. And I'm fielding phone calls and we're trying to make decisions about whether I'm even going to talk to the media because now there's a element of strategy in place. Like someone, if I remain quiet, can get a, an exclusive with me. And I'm like, you know, an exclusive, like, I'm, I'm used to talking to anybody who's willing to talk to me. Like, you know, as a literary novelist, you're not giving exclusives. You're hoping that your phone rings, you know. But we have at this point like a publicist in place and she's talking to the Today Show and Good Morning America and pitting one against the other. And, you know, people are trying to get the exclusive and things are just out of control. We're auctioning off foreign rights and audio rights and movie rights and all kinds of stuff. Again, for a book that does not technically exist yet. So it's kind of a whirlwind. And I'm doing this as I'm wrapping up my final weeks of my tenure at Rutgers. And Adam, how did it feel to go from being a literary novelist, spending years at a time with your head down, working on one book at a time? You know, the, the sound of a literary novel being published is a little like a tree falling in a forest, um, <laughs> it, except on the rare times when, when it's not. And this entirely left field thing happens completely unexpected, you know, impossible to have imagined, along with trying to do everything right. What did it feel like? There was definitely a lot of joy and exhilaration and shock and surprise. Um, I mean, I was feeding off of the people around me and my friends were watching this happen and they were tickled by it because it was something that was just done with so little calculation. And I was excited, but I was also nervous or kind of jittery and on edge, I guess, because what was happening was clearly very good, but it was impossible to see even three days into the future. So, you know, it was impossible to know whether this was such a flash in the pan that the book would actually be forgotten already by the time it was published, or whether it was conceivable that we could ride this and stay at number one until it was published. I was refreshing my Amazon page every 15 minutes, you know? <laughs> it was like, okay, still number one, still number one, click. Okay, still number one, you know, go make a coffee, come back, click, still number one, okay, so far so good. 
it was a wild moment. I mean, it, it was more exciting than anything that had happened in a long time. But I also felt like I had to be very strategic and careful and do anything I could to help this thing continue to succeed. And I also felt powerless over it. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing or whether any action of mine could affect this in any way. At the very least, this was an industry I knew and had been making a living in for the better part of the last decade. So, you know, it's not like I was just some schmuck who'd never written a book before and this was happening to me. I was some schmuck who'd written several books and this was happening to me. So at least I had that going for me. We'll be right back. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day smart metabolic burn by brain md can kickstart your metabolism fight stubborn body fat especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey right now save over 30 percent on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. With Father's Day just around the corner, Adam is cautiously riding the high of his forthcoming publication in June. On May 28, 2011, he's playing records in a lounge bar in Philly. He's just taught his last class at Rutgers, and many of his grad students are in attendance. It's a joyful night, a victory lap of sorts, and a goodbye to his students. And a goodbye to Philly, too, as he's planning to move soon. A lot of good friends are there, and Adam is basking in the great energy of the evening. Then his phone rings, and he sees that it's his father. He doesn't answer. It's unusual that his dad is calling so late at night, but Adam doesn't clock it as strange or unsettling. In a state of cognitive dissonance, he ignores the call with no inkling that anything could be wrong. But then his phone rings again. It was about 1230. 99 times out of 100, I would have been home and asleep and in bed at that time. My father was always up at that time because he would be coming home probably from the newspaper. So I saw his name on my phone and I didn't pick it up because I was in the middle of playing this set. Um, And you can't DJ and talk on the phone at the same time. And in as much as I thought anything, the quick calculation that I made about my father calling me unprecedentedly at this time, he never called me that late, was that it had something to do with the book, that some new bit of news around go the fuck to sleep had emerged that I didn't know about and he did because he'd spent the last eight hours in the newsroom and he was calling to tell me something funny or you know tell me that one of his colleagues had had the pdf land in their inbox or you know some something trivial and cool like that so I didn't answer and then he called back again and so I answered And the first thing my father asked me was whether I was sitting down, which I don't think anybody had ever asked me that in real life before. You know, I I, I guess I guess that question is only asked when you think that the news you're about to deliver might literally knock somebody on their ass, that, that the person's legs might stop working. So I walked outside through the back room of the club and then also through the front room. And sometime, I think, before I got outside. My father said to me, David has taken his own life. That was the phrase he used. And and I I was unable to even really process what he was saying. It seemed so outlandish that the first thing I said was, what? I mean, I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. Um, So I I made him say it again. And by that time, I was outside and... um, he proceeded to explain to me that my brother had been missing all day, that he and my mother had been at my brother's apartment with my brother's wife, um, with the sinking, growing feeling that 
something had happened, um, but that they had just received the news from, I guess it would have been the, the police officer or the emergency worker or something who found his body in his car where he chose to kill himself. So this is what my father told me at 1230 on that night. I had some further conversation with my father that I can't really remember very well. I remember the, it was extremely hot, even at night, we're in the middle of a heat wave and I was sort of, you know, I sort of stepped outside into this hot air that felt like somebody was breathing right in your face. And I remember crying, I remember asking further questions. I remember my father sort of inquiring into my safety and, and well-being like he really wanted to know like where are you and what are you going to do now and like can you get yourself home you know like what are you going to do like I, he, I think he made me promise not to drive or something like that I got off the phone with my father and I stood there crying hysterically and I don't think that I spoke out loud to my brother but I think I spoke in my head to my brother and you know said something along the lines of like what have you done I don't think I was out there very long. I think before I was even done crying, I went back in the club. I walked straight to Emery, who was a good friend of mine, probably my closest friend in Philly. And I told him that my, that my brother had killed himself. And, you know, the, the look on his face was sort of the first, it was the first kind of mirror that I had. It was the first reading back of what had happened on, on someone else's face, which He's like, what do you need? Do you want me to drive you home? I basically just was like, I'm leaving. Grab my records when you go or something like that. And I, you know, I just I just kind of got out of there. I think I called my father back from the car, having already promised not to drive and, you know, currently driving to try to get more information, to try to, I don't know, understand this thing better in some kind of way. I remember just driving down the freeway, blinking back tears and just kind of like feeling a lot i mean there, there was the, there was the shock there was the attempt to understand what was happening i should say that i can't imagine that the news that someone killed himself would ever not be surprising and shocking but in the case of my brother he had gone to great pains to hide his depression and make sure that no one knew about it so this was entirely surprising to me. I had not known that my brother suffered from depression in any way. I thought he was a weird but happy guy. So, you know, I was learning this entire history and this entire secret that his wife had kept from everybody, that he had insisted she keep from everybody on pain of him never speaking to them again if she told them. Tremendous shame on his part about what he was going through. I learned that my parents had known for a little while that my brother's wife had eventually kind of buckled under this tremendous pressure and told them, but that my brother had downplayed it, but that they'd all been extremely worried for the past few months and that I had not been brought into this confidence, which even at the time, like, felt very frustrating. And I think immediately took me down the track of like, what if I would have been able to do something? What if not telling me was the worst thing you could have done? What if I'm the person in this family best equipped to do something, at least in convince him to seek help? But there was another part of me that 
as I was sort of navigating my own grief, navigating the roads of Philly, was filled with enormous trepidation because I knew that when I got home, I would have to wake up my then partner, uh, Vivian's mother, and tell her what had happened. And that seemed, you know, incredibly hard. Even, I mean, saying it out loud felt incredibly hard, but having to break that news felt almost too much. Um, but that's that's what I went home and did. There's something that, you know, in the midst of just profound shock, having to say it, being the bearer of it suddenly, you know, which, you know, you were when you when you told Emery, but then, you know, you're going home and you're telling your, your then partner, it makes it more real, I think. Yeah, definitely. It makes it more real with every time that you say it, with every repetition, you you bring it more fully into reality somehow. You feel like you're lying. Like mm-hmm. the, these words can't be true. I'm saying these words that I know are true, but they can't be true. And then each time you say them, it becomes more true or more real. Yeah. And then even realer than that is watching it become true for someone else. Exactly. Destroying someone else's world with that information. You know, I mean, for months and months after his death, I really strove to never be the one to break the news to anyone. I wanted people to know. I wanted the road sort of paved ahead of me. Like, I wanted all my friends to know, but I didn't want to be the one to tell them. And, you know, I found ways to navigate conversations with strangers I've developed kind of a sixth sense for when a conversation might turn in the direction of family so that I could steer it another way before I was asked to kind of account for my own family. You know, and this was a time when I was like around a lot of strangers because go the fuck to sleep continued to happen and I continued to like have to deal with what that meant and tour and travel and chat and schmooze. But yeah, the actual simple act of stating that my brother had killed himself was probably the the single most painful. Like it was the thing I, I, it was the thing I guess that I felt like I had enough agency to be able to avoid. So I tried very hard to avoid it. Adam returns to Newton, to his parents' home, where they observe the Jewish ritual of sitting Shiva, a prescribed week of mourning. Though they're descended from ancestors who are famous rabbis, the family are secular Jews, not religious at all. And these religious practices, in the case of David's death, do not feel exactly healing or helpful to Adam. Because my family is deeply culturally Jewish, I think my sensibilities are very Jewish. My sense of humor, my sense of uh, art coming from the margins, all of these things to me are quintessentially Jewish, but we do not go to synagogue. There's, a, if anything, a hostility and a skepticism toward organized religion. I was not bar mitzvahed. My parents don't belong to a synagogue, nor did their parents. <laughs> you know, we go pretty far back as secular agnostic Jews in this country. So when we were sitting shiva, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. It was an approximation of a shiva. We didn't have any guidance. We didn't really have a connection to these rituals. You know, suicide in some ways... Is a, is a dramatization of that because you're at a loss, I think almost no matter what your tradition is. Like most religions and most traditions kind of fail us when it comes to suicide. 
or they have a few terse words to say and you're not allowed to be buried in the cemetery or whatever. But my family was particularly poorly equipped to deal with any of it because we, you know, we don't have that as at our, at our fingertips at all. We don't have those traditions. So, yeah, I found myself trying to grapple with what it meant, whether you could invent a ritual, whether that counted as a ritual, what a ritual was intended to do and who it was for and how it was meant to be carried out. Like all of these things were adding to my state of <laughs> distress, particularly the feeling that in the absence of a regimented path, I was going to do it wrong. This idea that if you sort of mourned incompletely, like pushed it away, didn't deal with it fully, whatever that meant, that the grief would somehow regroup and come back stronger. And if you didn't sort of face it now, it, it would become more and more unbeatable later. And and I remember, like, I kind of internalized that and let it scare me even <laughs> even more. And I don't think that was a useful thing to to have put in my in my mind. Like, I think the opposite is true. I think that people grieve in all kinds of different ways. Certainly, there are ways to not fully grieve, but the idea that that there is one way. I think it, for me was a very damaging idea. And remember, this terrible grief is now coinciding with the crazy roller coaster ride of Adam's book publication. The high point of his career is now underscored and forever tied to his agony over his brother's suicide. In the midst of all this, Adam struggles to understand his brother's life and his brother's death. One of the ways I think in which for me anyway, suicide is so difficult to deal with and difficult to mourn is that it effectively rewrites everything you thought you knew about a person, at least in, in the case of my brother. I'm someone who, if I'm trained in anything, I'm trained to kind of create and craft narrative and pull together threads and weave together something that makes sense and tells a story. And in trying to understand my brother's life and my brother's death, I was sort of torn between these warring impulses, one of which was to create narrative, create a narrative, and one of which was to resist the creation of narrative, even my own narrative, because fundamentally I knew that I did not understand and probably could not understand what had happened, and that certain things about his actions were going to just be resistant to the project of creating a coherent story. Um, so, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of parts to that, right? There's the part where a person can both be planning to live and planning to die, and these are simultaneous impulses, and you kind of just have to understand that his mind was running on both those tracks at once. Like, I went to his apartment with my cousin, and among other things that we found there, we found in his email the receipt for the chemicals that he had ordered that he would mix together and use and breathe to kill himself. He had ordered those, and after he had ordered those, he had ordered an expensive skateboard that still hadn't arrived. Um, he had printed out directions to a memorial service for our grandfather, which wasn't for a couple of months. So, like, he was planning to live and he was planning to die. And, you know, there's a part of you that 
might see all that evidence laid out and turn it into a detective story and say something is amiss, something is awry, something doesn't add up. Why would he do this if he was going to do that? I suspect foul play. You know, you could you could you could spin up any kind of narrative, but the struggle for me was to understand that all of these things were kind of true at once, that this was a paradox that I was not going to resolve, but that instead I merely had to kind of hold and look at and not try to unravel, not try to turn the two things into one thing. There was also the way in which everything I thought I knew about my brother was now rewritten by his act of killing himself and by the revelation that he'd been depressed for years and years. So, you know, things he had done and said that I had ascribed one meaning to suddenly took on a different meaning. Even something as simple as looking as, at a photograph. You know, it's like a photograph in which he, up until now, seemed to be looking at the camera. Now he no longer seemed to be looking at the camera. He seemed to be staring into sort of the abyss, you know? I mean, it sounds dramatic and melodramatic and maybe dumb, but there's a way in which even looking at a simple artifact, which has not changed in any way, it feels different now that this life has concluded in this way. Adam also suspected, looking back, that perhaps his brother had Asperger's syndrome, as David's character bore some of the hallmarks of being on the spectrum. He was extremely intelligent, high-achieving, and academically gifted. But it was hard for him to connect, to have an emotional conversation. The type of questions one might expect to elicit an emotional response from him often did not. I remember one time, you know, at the time he and I were both involved with partners who were from other countries. His wife was Brazilian. My partner at the time was Swedish. And I remember sort of trying to talk to him about being with somebody who sort of has a foot in two different cultures. And, you know, do you think you'd ever move to Brazil? How does she feel about living in America? Blah, blah, blah. And his response was sort of just a recitation of crime statistics in Rio. And I was like, huh, that's that's an, that's a weird response. But like, you know, with the revelation of, of this crippling depression and this suicide, it's like I found myself looking back on things and saying, well, maybe it's not that that was the response that like, made the most sense to him, maybe that was the response that prevented him from opening up the Pandora's box of his own emotions and quickly getting lost. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes 
and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by Brain MD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Adam's book is hurtling toward existence, picking up speed. In the midst of all his grief and family turmoil, he's thrust into the public eye in a way that's highly unusual for a writer. He's the subject of many interviews and has booked a coveted spot on morning television. He's worried that some interviewer is going to learn about David's suicide and ambush him, forcing him to talk publicly about his loss. He's caught between two selves, needing simultaneously to perform and to retreat. It's almost like there's another, there's another Adam who is suffering and is grief-stricken, and that Adam needs to kind of sit, sit out. Right. And not be the one who's talking to Matt Lauer on the Today Show. Right. <laughs> yeah. I knew even at the time that it was not a rational fear that, like, Matt Lauer is going to blindside me in the middle of this fluffy interview and ask me about my brother's nascent death. Nobody actually is invested in doing anything of the kind, right? It's completely outside the narrative that all of us are agreed upon in in the in that setting and in every every setting at the same time weird shit was happening on a daily basis like bizarre somewhat unthinkable certainly implausible stuff was continuing to unfold day by day one day a bunch of topless photos of me quote unquote leak and are like on the internet i mean what this was was me <laughs> What this was was like me playing basketball with a bunch of friends and students at a summer program in Ann Arbor that I taught at every summer. They did not leak. Somebody took them and they existed. But I was just famous enough for somebody to think that anybody might give a shit and to like put them out there and be like, go the fuck to sleep, author, you know, whatever it was. You know, like that didn't make any sense either. It didn't make any sense. That, like 
there was a censorship fight over the book in New Zealand. It didn't make any sense that Sam Jackson was reading the book on the Dave Letterman show. Like, nothing made any sense. So it seemed just barely plausible enough that in a moment where everybody was rushing to find some angle and some way to write about Go the Fuck to Sleep and use it as fodder for their think pieces and their takedowns and their hand-wringing about the sorry state of parenthood, whatever it was, that somebody might find this morsel of information and think to use it. But, I mean, more than anything, I think what I felt and what I was aware of was that just as David had sort of chosen to wear a mask and chosen to obscure his real feelings and hide them, and that in some real sense, this, as much as anything, was the thing that had killed him, that he chose hiding and chose that shame and that secrecy over telling anybody what was really going on and living in that and allowing us to help him. It was very real to me that I was making a not entirely dissimilar choice in putting on this different mask, but still a mask and sort of cleaving my public persona from my real persona and going on this kind of like victory tour of American media and then international media and repeatedly telling a story about my life and my current circumstances that were not in any way reflective of what I was really going through. That felt, on one hand, it felt disrespectful to my brother to be out here pretending that I was indeed like the happiest, luckiest schmuck in the world. And it also in an uglier and darker way felt to me like there was a way to spin it as an affirmation of everything that he had thought and the choices that had led him to kill himself. Because you don't, I think a thing, if the literature is to be, to be believed, a thing that suicidal people convince themselves of is that everybody will be better off without them. That everybody will be okay, will survive, will recover the loss, and it'll be okay. And in presenting this public face to the world, it's like I was turning myself into a walking dramatization of that fact. Like I was walking around being like, I'm okay. Um, and at the same time, I knew that my family very much needed to see me be okay and do all of these things. Like they very much were of the opinion that I should go out and promote the book. And then there was the part of me that was struggling because I wanted to at least feel more conflicted about whether I should go out and promote the book. But on a very basic level, I wanted to, and I was ambitious and desirous of all of the success and the fame and the money that would come with this book being successful and sort of achieving escape velocity, right? This was the moment where with enough booster fuel, the thing could get into orbit and potentially just kind of circle the planet forever. And I knew that this was that time and I knew that I could play a role in that because all of these opportunities were available and we could see the results from them. Like, you know, when you're tracking a project that closely, you actually see the sales bump after you do the Today Show or the sales bump after you do this thing or that thing. So like, it was all right there at my fingertips. And I was sort of struggling with all of those things and toggling between all of those things. Yeah, and, and I think also there's a kind of self-protection involved there too. I mean, you write something that struck me as really 
a very universal feeling there, which was if tragedy was ever allowed to step into the winner's circle, triumph would be incinerated. You know, like yeah. somehow the the magical thinking feeling of there are two worlds and they can't coexist, which of course they can and they do, but that that feeling. Yeah. Adam has an event for his book in Georgetown. He knows the woman who's organized it. She had gone to the same school as him and David. So he knows it's going to come up. She's going to ask how David's doing, what he's up to. Adam can feel it coming. And then there it is. She finally asks. And he flat out lies. He tells her David is married and living in Brookline. I knew I wasn't going to get out of this without accounting for him in some way. Like it was, you know, no matter how how I deflected or flipped the conversation, I sort of knew the entire evening that this woman was going to ask about my brother. And I, I truly did not know what I was going to do when she did. Like, you know, we're at some dinner with a whole bunch of people. I didn't know anybody. This is her event. So I, I just lied to her. I just told her he was he was fine. And, it, you know, it felt like it felt like it cost me something. It felt deeply uncomfortable to me. But also, I think I think better than better for all of us than me telling her that uh, actually three weeks earlier he had killed himself. Suicide is also so different than every other kind of, of death and every other kind of grief. That was something that also struck me again and again. You know, I would be sitting down to I remember getting back to California months and months later and sitting down for dinner with two very good friends of mine, both of whom in the in the previous six months had lost a grandparent and listening, you know, and they both knew about David and we had talked about it already. So I wasn't in the same situation, but I just remember sitting and listening to them each talk about the funeral and all of the surrounding activity and emotion and how it feels when an elder dies and the way that everybody gets a bump. Here's just all of this stuff that, that was very like recognizably in line with the natural flow of life, sad, but not unnatural in the way that suicide continued and continues to feel to me and just feeling like the three of us are at this table talking about death and yet i can't talk you know i can't contribute my story does not intersect with these stories and so life continues adams riding the wave of his public success while privately contending with his grief Many opportunities are coming his way. It's now 2014, and he's at a storytelling event at the Moss in Boston. The evening is a turning point for Adam. He feels in this moment that he wants and needs to tell the story of his brother. The other writers participating in the event are being vulnerable, and he feels like a fraud. But first he needs to shed his mask, the protected shield that has kept him, well, shielded for so long. And he also needs to find the language to write about David. He's written in all sorts of forms and genres. Supernatural thrillers, screenplays, literary novels. But now he feels the pull to return to where he began with a form he'd inherited from his grandmother. Poetry. Perhaps in poetry, he can begin to unpack the story that needs unpacking. To tell the story that needs telling. The story of his brother, David. I certainly think that that moment in Boston was a, a touch point. Well, 
it was the closest that I probably came to even thinking or attempting to, certainly to attempting to talk about or write about David. I think that from very soon after his death, I always knew that I would have to write something about him. This is, it's just, it's just too central and too critical to the way that I process the world to not. Um, and yet I continued to not do it and to not really even attempt to do it. I thought about doing it. I never stopped thinking about doing it. I never stopped thinking about it and I never stopped being stymied by things like what the form would be, what the architecture would be, what the kind of scaffolding of it would look like. I never considered doing it as a poem until I did it as a poem. I thought about a novel, a screenplay, a, an essay. I wrote one half of one scene of a screenplay, which was basically me DJing in a club and my phone ringing. And I don't even think I answered the phone in the scene that I wrote. I, that's as far as I got. Um, but I, you know, the, the, I never stopped thinking about writing about him. And I never stopped feeling like something was out of whack, like my, my life and my, my creative life was out of balance for not having written about him. That like everything else I was writing was relatively easy, was light work, was trivial, because there was this thing that I had to write about and was not even really spending any time thinking about writing about. You know, that, that moment at the Moth in 2014, what got me to that producer's door at, you know, 10 o'clock the night before the performance was the fact that earlier that night we'd rehearsed and I'd heard all these other stories and everybody's story was so honest and raw and vulnerable and there was so much bravery in them getting up and talking about whatever the thing was. Because, you know, the moth doesn't typically do too many light, breezy stories. Like, often they take a dark turn. The classic moth story is four or five minutes of fun and games and laughter and light, and then somebody is diagnosed with something or somebody goes through something horrible and the rest of the story is really dealing head on with whatever that turn and that tragedy is. The story I was telling was none of that. The story I was telling was basically a stand-up comedy routine. Now, they needed that to end the night with so that everybody walked out of there, you know, able to operate heavy machinery. But yet I felt newly dishonest in the face of all this other courage and bravery from my other co-storytellers. And it also felt very different to me three years later I felt like it was one thing to do my go the fuck to sleep tour and bullshit with Matt Lauer and whoever else and promote the book in the way it needed to be promoted and keep my grief and my pain to myself. But it felt like a new level of dishonesty and maybe an unhealthy one to three years later be crafting my own story in my own words, under my own sort of motor and still be telling the story that didn't include my brother still be telling the fun and games version. I went out and told that story exactly as I was supposed to and got big laughs and had a ball and they kept bringing me back. And I ended up telling that story in probably, you know, 10 different cities and sort of subsuming the part of me that felt like I, you know, shouldn't be telling that story, but should instead be working on telling the real story. In many ways, Adam's book about his brother reads like a ritual itself. Even though Adam is not religious, it has an incantatory quality, 
like the Jewish mourner's prayer, the Kaddish. Another staggering moment begins with an ampersand. Adam writes, And so all I can do is grapple my way back, is write this, or maybe, I mean, mine. Make ritual of being known, as he would not build a bridge. I do grapple a lot in this book with the idea of telling his story, this notion of being resistant to narrative versus deeply, deeply dependent on narrative. The idea that the fundamental thing David refused to do was tell his story, like live in the honesty of what he was going through and who he was. And so I think I say those lines in the context of my own children and thinking about what tools I want them to have that David didn't in the event that they ever deal with any of the things he did. You know, I've been lucky enough to sidestep the genetic inheritance of depression, but it runs on both sides of my family, my mother's and my father's, through the generations. So I look at my own three children and what I really want more than anything is for them to not feel the kind of shame that would lead them to keep something like depression or mental illness a secret. So the building of a bridge, I think, is the idea of helping them construct a language, a framework, a life in which they never feel the need to hide that really characterized David's life. Suicide is so particular there are no natural bridges to it like nothing connects to it it's sort of an island and to get there you have to swim here's adam reading one last passage from his beautiful powerful book i had a brother once soon after his death my mother tried to make me promise i would never write about david I said nothing and continue to say nothing until now, and still do not know if she asked because it is nobody's business or would be too painful to see rendered on the page, or simply because when my mother was a girl, Felicia promised never to write about her, and this, she feels, is what a writer owes his family. But I will make a different plea to my children. I will implore them to write it, speak it all, shed light, and who knows what else you might shed. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram, at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast— Check out my memoir, Inheritance.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by Brain MD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 